The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash, and this episode is proudly brought to you by City Fertility, global leaders in fertility and IVF. This week, we dive into the topic of embryology. We go deep with scientist Sarah Delati. Sarah opens up about her work as a baby-making scientist. I ask Sarah, why did she choose embryology as a career? We discuss her PhD and why mice are so great to work with in science and research. What does the average day of an embryologist look like? She takes us through the journey of eggs, sperm, embryos. How does a scientist choose the best egg, sperm, embryo during IVF treatment? What techniques do they use in the lab? Will artificial intelligence change the nature of their work? If so, how? Why are embryos graded differently in different labs? How have technologies such as time-lapse machines changed embryology? How will these technologies change the embryologist's work in the future? I ask her a big question. When does life begin? When do you, dear listener, think life begins? I'd love to hear your thoughts. I also ask Sarah, what is the most exciting part of her job? What is the most tedious part of her job? What physical challenges do embryologists face? Sarah also shares tips for being a kick-ass embryologist. I hope you enjoy our chat. Sarah Delati, or is it Sarah Delati? I've never asked you that before, have I? No, you're right. It's Sarah Delati. Sarah Delati. Thank you for uh, joining me today on the Fanny Mechanic Podcast. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while and I'm True. very happy Thank you for having me with me today. Now, you are, if you, if you met someone randomly in a cafe and they ask you what you did for work, what would you say to them? I make babies. Oh, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I make babies for a living. That's what I do. And is that because you say that because if you say you're an embryologist, people don't know what you're talking about and you have to explain yourself? Or you, I yeah. suppose you still have to explain yourself when you say you make babies. True. Um, but I think embryologist is such a, it's a very scientific term. And a lot of people are like, when I tell them I'm an embryologist, they're like, what does that mean? And then I'm like, oh, I work in an IVF clinic. Oh, okay. They're like, oh, so do you put things together? I'm like, yes, that's what I do. I put <laughs> eggs and sperm together. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone is so fascinated by it. And I think why I love being an embryologist is I enjoy demystifying the science. And I think that's what a lot of people don't understand. A lot of our patients don't understand. It's the science. And I love bringing it down to a level where people can understand things. So so what made you do yeah. it in the first place? Oh, I've always been fascinated by science in general, biology, reproduction. And I think I was thinking just before I got on with you, I was thinking what really got me into science? Um, do you remember, do you know Gunther, that German Mm. anatomist oh yes the controversial guy yeah who, who, so who basically um embalms people yeah well does yeah. live i think autopsies even yeah. does autopsies live mm -hmm. so i think in my young years dad and i would just sit it'd be like 11 p.m at night i would sit with him watching him doing autopsies and just looking at the anatomy of the human body and for me i think i would have been about 13 or 14 when my fascination really started and I was just mesmerized. I was like, this is incredible. 
I didn't really know I wanted to get into embryology or to IVF, but I think once I started to get into when I was, you know, during my university years, that's when reproduction really started to fascinate me and the way, you know, cells form to become a baby. Um, but I think it was only up until I did my honours, I started my honours um, at Sydney Uni, that's when it all sort of started to come together. I knew I wanted to get into reproduction somehow. I didn't know which part, either a midwife or an obstetrician or I bet. And then once I sort of started my honours, that's where I think the love came in. I'm like, this is what I want to do. I want to get into human embryology and, and learn how to do these things. And I think that was almost 10, 11 years ago, um, if not longer. 2008 is when I did my honours, so 12 years ago. And not many people had heard of embryology back then. It was still quite new. Um, but I think that's when I fell in love with it, my honours and during my university years. And then that's what I was like, that's it. I want to become an embryologist. And was that a science honours that you were doing? Yeah, so I did my Bachelor of Science and I did my honours. My honours was in mouse embryology. Um, and so it was. I was looking at fertilisation and a developing mouse embryo. Um, obviously, for ethical reasons, the majority of scientists can't do research on human embryos. So the best and the next best alternative is mouse embryos. So all of my research was done on mouse embryos and a developing mouse embryo. So um, I assume I think- you had a lot to do with mice? Yes, lots. Not afraid of them, <laughs> I'm sure now, right? <laughs> I'm not afraid of them, but um, they're. I mean, I'm I'm grateful that I had the opportunity to to work with these incredible creatures. And I think a lot of people don't realise, you know, most people just think of them as a pest or a rodent. But the amount of you know knowledge that they've given scientists across the world and myself, like, I'm incredibly thankful that we're able to do these things with these with these little little guys. I think, you know, I learned so much from from them. Um, and just the manipulation of embryos and injecting eggs and learning about, you know, basic physiology and, and, and yeah. What makes mice such a, a great model to work on? Can you explain good, to good our question. listeners? Yeah, good question. Um, the reason we choose mice are they're amazing breeders. And I think um, when it comes to humans and mammals, uh, well, us humans, and you would know from Devora, we're, we're the worst at reproducing. We're the worst <laughs> mammals at reproducing. But mice, on the other hand, I remember we had a breeding colony set up that I was in charge of for my supervisor, and they would produce 20, 20 babies in a litter, so 20 little little pups. Um, it was incredible. So they produce babies really quickly. And for, for research, you want to have a lot of cells. So I would you know, if I wanted to collect eggs from one mouse, I remember during my honours year, I was able to retrieve about, I, th- I can't remember exactly, but it was either 60 to 80 eggs from one mouse, believe it or not. Wow. And so for me to be able to do my research, you can do research on, on a large number of eggs from, you know, a small cohort of mice. You can do your research. I mean, you know, research does take a long time, but you're able to do things quite quickly. They're small, they're easy to handle. And in a way, they're cheap as well. So you can bring up these these mice fairly quickly so that you can fund your research and keep your research going. So they're, they're really good breeders. Yeah, but they don't last, they don't like live very long. Is that correct? No, for us though, we were mainly interested, you know, we wanted young females. We would um, euthanize, you know, six-week-old female mice and, you know, they were at their peak reproductive age. So by six weeks, we were, we were you know, we never kept them for much longer. Um, other research areas do work on aged mice, but that wasn't our sort of, you know, we wanted reproductive mice that were at their prime reproductive age. So 
No, they didn't live long. The the breeding colony, um, we would use them up until, you know, once they started not producing enough, you know, I think when a mouse is about, not too sure how old they get, but they get, you know, when you compare them to human years, I think like a six-week-old mice is comparable to, I think, like a 25-year-old mm. female. Mm. Yeah, I think it, it works out like that. So when they're about 10 months old, they're about 60 years of age or something. So we didn't want to keep them that long, um, but we would always use the mice um, for our research. So. And what was the hardest yeah. thing about working with mice? Oh, they're unpredictable sometimes. The, the, <laughs> the strain that we used was supposed to be one of the most sort of um, docile or the quietest. But um, they're, and I think if you have a fear of, of animals, and I think um, they can be quite jumpy, but they sense, they sense if you're anxious, they become anxious. I think like a lot of animals, like horses, they can pick up when you're anxious and they can sense that. Um, but I think the most difficult part was the injection. So we wanted, we were obviously working on the reproductive part of, of these animals. So we wanted to collect their eggs. And just like women go through an IVF cycle, they need to go through stimulation, we would stimulate these mice to get eggs. So the injections were the tough part, coming in at 9 or 10 p.m. at night, giving them their, their FSH, um, their follicle-stimulating hormone, to get more follicles, and then coming in two days later to give them their, their trigger injection. So I was doing that, not in humans but on mice, and, and you know, stimulating them and triggering them. I think that was probably the hard part. And the more hard part, I think, um, the harder part was was euthanizing them. Mm. I think that that became really – it's a very, very difficult thing. Not many people can, can handle it. Um, How would you do but, that? Would you guess them? No, because gassing them affected their reproductive organs. They're a very small creature. So, you know, I mean, they're sick. They're mm. about the size of your palm. Um, the gas, unfortunately, I remember my supervisor telling me, it actually impact. We didn't want any impact on the eggs or the sperm. So the most, I don't like this word because we say humane, but really, you know, the most humane way was a quick cervical dislocation. Oh, so, wow, breaking their necks. Correct. So it was fast. They didn't really feel it. Um, and then you'd go in straight away, retrieve. We, I would dissect. So it was all, I would do a, mic, a macro dissection of the ovary and a bit of their fallopian tube. And then I'd go under the microscope. For eggs, it was quite easy because I could I could just pull apart the, the part of the, I think it was called the ampullary region. And this ball of cells would fall out and it'd be cumulus oocyte complexes, just, you know, loads of eggs. Um, if we were looking for embryos, so sometimes we would mate the females overnight next morning we check them and then bring them up and then depending on the stage that we're at we would actually with a, a very small needle flush the fallopian tubes and you'd just see these embryos come out whether the two cell four cell or eight cell no stage way. so it was incredible and it was it was a de once you mastered that technique because you were using a very fine um you know the insulin needles mm. They had a little bend and you'd insert it into the ampullary part of the a part of the fallopian tube and you'd fill that up with sort of like a fluid which mimicked the the um the fluid in the in the fallopian tube. And you'd see the tubes sort of plump up and then it'd all come out the other end that you'd you'd cut off and all of these embryos would come out. So it was incredible. Yeah, I'm trying to imagine that. I mean, I, I used to be terrified of mice and then I watched the movie Ratatouille, you know, it's a cartoon. Oh, yeah. yeah and then yeah. I, I suddenly thought that they were really cute. So I'm not that scared of them anymore. <laughs> but I remember doing a lot of stuff at uni with mice 
But um, yeah, when you mentioned earlier that you've worked with them a lot and and the significance of what they've uh, provided us, it, it is it is actually huge. So thank you, mice, all those little mice that have died oh, no. for us. I oh, know <laughs> we're yeah. talking millions, if not God <laughs> how many. And um, you then went on to do a PhD. Correct. What so, was that in? Um, so it was a follow. It was a follow on from my honours year. Um, once I finished my honours. Thing is, it's very difficult to get into embryology or become an embryologist. So, trying to find a job to get into em- become an embryologist wasn't that easy. There's no direct path, I think, in New South Wales. So, my supervisor said to me, "Why don't you come back and do a PhD?" And I thought, "Oh, this sounds fun." Um, <laughs> I didn't know what I was getting into. <laughs> um, but my PhD was a continuation of my honours year, and it was focused on. So the the um, it was focused on fertilization, but specifically what we know is when the sperm and the egg fuse, um, there are electrical changes that occur between them, and that's termed electrophysiology. Um, and so the focus of my honors and my PhD was trying to work out one what these electrical ch- what cause these electrical changes and their importance and significance in at fertilization and a developing embryo. Um, yeah. And that's that's what I spent. We, you know, five years later, after I completed my PhD, we know that there are channels that are present. So we're talking when I say channels, it's like little gates. They open up and they let salts and and energy substrates and you know um, into the into the oocyte. They they allow things in and out, exchange from the intracellular to the extracellular environment. Um, we know these channels play a crucial role at fertilization, and I identified the types of channels they are the types of um, chemicals or compounds they allow in and out, the family of proteins they belong to. So it was a, it's a huge project. It's, you know, I'm really summarising it, but um, it was lots of fun. Yeah, what a huge lots contribution of, too. Good on it, you, Del Yeah, Marty. thank you. <laughs> and we, <laughs> thank are, we're, you we're, we are electricity and I think people forget that, you know, that um, we, we do get electric shocks. So when we go to hospital and we've got a, a heartache, we will get attached to a monitor that picks up yeah. our electrical um, heart activity, and uh, yeah, I think people forget that. And I think that's why I'm also partial to acupuncture and Chinese medicine because they appreciate that we are made up the, of these electrical kind of meridians or planes, and um, and you know the fact that an, an egg and sperm come together and electricity has to be formed yeah. for that fertilization process to happen, or as a byproduct of that, it just blows my yeah. mind each time. It's it's incredible. So I would measure the changes, these electrical changes, um, on e- on an egg, on a single egg every single day. I'd I'd bring down. It's similar to the ICSI process, um, but I'd bring down a um, a needle which had um, what is it called? Uh, sort of like a. Oh, I've lost it now. Um, but it would it would measure all of these little electrical changes, and you'd see them. They're what we term hyperpolarizations or depolarizations so it go really really negative and really really positive mm. and if you don't these changes if these changes don't occur at fertilization or if they don't happen at all these eggs will never fertilize and they'll never become an embryo so for me i have this background and knowledge and i think if you bring it forward into the world of embryology you know for, for some patients they're like well why can't i get fertilization why can't i develop embryos and you know there's a lot for us to learn and we're still learning so much about embryos and fertilization and you know human embryology and i think for me i think these things all come in and they slowly fit into a to the piece of the puzzle that we still are yet to completely form so 
it yeah. is. It's, it's incredible. And then often when there is complete fertilization failure or relative, we then talk about calcium and calcium yes. and uh, you know, media and products to get the process going maybe for the next cycle. Can you explain to our listeners what that's about? Calcium, how important Calci- is that? So so when I so during my PhD, what happens is we knew that calcium, as soon as the sperm and the egg fuse, it's amazing. This wave of calcium spreads across the egg and it sort of becomes like these constant waves. Um, so we call that this re- this rise in, in the in, in intracellular calcium concentration. So at the same time, and this is where my PhD sort of fell in, was we wanted to know what, so at the same time, the calcium changes occurred, these electrical changes occurred. They were sort of almost mimicking one another. The calcium would go up and then the electrical changes in the egg, it become more negative. Um, but calcium plays a huge role in the developing embryo. One, it's required for the egg to fertilize. Um, and two, these changes are important for the embryo to go ahead. So for some patients, um, they, they may try, for example, IVF and get a failed fertilization. And then the doctor's like, all right, well, let's try ICSI. Um, and I don't, for our listeners, I think ICSI is what we term intracytoplasmic sperm injection. We take a single sperm and inject it into a, into a mature egg. And then sometimes that doesn't work. And then you're like, okay, well, IVF's not working, ICSI's not working, we can try a different sort of process. And this is where we're sort of increasing or allowing the egg to be exposed to some, some a higher level of, of calcium. And by doing so, we're, we're sort of forced, not forcing them, but you're giving the egg something that it may not have had prior to this. And it's incredible that when sometimes we do this ICSI with, with that increased calcium, um, we end up with fertilization. So for me, as, as someone who's worked with, with calcium and electrical changes, it sort of allows me to realize, well, these eggs or these patients' eggs actually may not have that ability to, to increase that calcium when these sperm eggs are fusing initially. So with us aiding or assisting them with that calcium in the outside environment, we're helping the egg sort of go through this change um, and allow it to become that embryo later on. Doesn't always work, but it's it's another step um, to help patients in um, developing embryos or, or getting embryos formed. So, say you've tried ICSI and then you know calcium enriched media, and there's still no fertilization. What are people's options? There aren't um, really many, are there? Or any no, donation? No. I don't know. You know. Mm. Yeah, I, I think for a lot of people, though, it and for a lot of patients, unfortunately, it's it's egg number. Um, it's 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 numbers. The more numbers you have the more tries, you know, if you think about, you know, the female the female cycle, we ovulate one egg every cycle. Um, so if you think about six months of trying, that's you're trying with six eggs. And so with IVF, you're increasing. So if you collect six eggs in an IVF cycle, it's kind of like condensed, you know, six months into one go. Um, but a lot of the times if we see repeated failed fertilization, um, we don't exactly know why. And a lot of embryology is or a lot of embryo development or why embryos don't why eggs don't fertilize or why embryos don't develop further. Um, for, for a lot of embryologists and scientists alike, it's unknown. We don't really know why. There's so many things that are happening at the, you know, molecular and biochemical level that are not visible to us um, just by looking at these gametes. And we're just scientists. We're just looking at these eggs. We're making a static, you know, assessment. And and for us, if we're not seeing the markers of fertilization or um then for us, that's all we can we can really go by. We don't know what's causing. But like you said, we, you know, clinics. Not all clinics will offer 
um, that uh, a high calcium ICSI. Um, but it's just trying, I guess, and, and giving it giving it a shot. But other than that, we don't really know why or there are no really other options except sort of trying again and then maybe egg donation for patients if that's something that they're willing to consider. Yeah, I think the the one nice thing about it but also very frustrating aspect of IVF and fertility reproduction is uh, a lot of the unknowns. You know, we, we are yes. very mysterious beings and we don't have the answers to everything, which I kind of like as well. But you know, in, in helping people conceive, that frustration does come up quite a bit. Can oh, you take um, the listeners on a journey through an average day for you as a scientist? So when you get up, I know embryologists always have early starts, but then you're, yes. I know you probably have shift work. But take us through an average day. Um, there isn't really a typical day. Our days are very, very dynamic and they can change very, very quickly. But I think when I come in, say, for example, it's Monday morning, the first thing that I come in before we even start moving or manipulating any eggs or embryos is we need to make sure the conditions that we're working in are, are, are optimum. So QC for embryologists plays such a big role, so quality control. We make sure the air temperature is is set at a specific temperature. The so we work in sort of what we call humidity cribs, um, and there's um, I mean you would know you know what cribs are. They're those you know yeah. when you have a premature baby. I think that's what they're based on. Mm. Um, the temperature in there is 37 degrees. They have um, embryos and eggs like a don't like too much oxygen, so they're like six percent carbon dioxide. So we make sure everything is set at the right temperature, the right pH, the fridge is running, the jewels are, you know, where we store our frozen embryos, they're at the right temperature. Um, so QC, quality control and making sure the lab is working at its optimum is the first thing that I do. Um, once I'm happy with everything, then that's when I start moving. Majority of the time in the lab, so what we'll do is it can, you know, some days are our, our egg collection or our embryo transfer days. So we'll come in, um, we have an operating theatre. So I work in a public hospital, so we'll go down to the theatres, scrub up, um, do the egg collections, collect the eggs for the patients. We take them back into the lab. Um, we do the insemination, so that's when the sperm and the eggs go together. If we have embryo transfers that afternoon, we choose the best embryo for transfer and, and put it back um, with the patient. Um, any remaining embryos that um, we didn't transfer, we freeze. Um, we do egg freezing as well. So there's a lot of um, a lot of a lot of things. So the, the days that we have egg collections are sort of based in the lab and and looking at the embryos. Um, yeah, there's quite a lot of things that happen. Um, we do spend a lot of our time assessing and looking at embryos. Um, and the fun thing about and the, the most fun that I enjoy is is using the time lapse machines to look at embryos. Tell us I about the time lapse. <laughs> so time lapse technology, I think, is honestly. It's 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 been incredible. It's it's given us so much insight into what happens. You know, I think time lapse was introduced in the in the in the late nineteen nineties, but it became I think commercially available in the about two thousand and nine or so. Um, but what time lapse is is it's an incubator. So if you think of it like an oven, it's to thirty seven degrees, but it's got some amazing software with an inbuilt camera, and we're able to look at the embryos over the course of the five days. So traditionally embryos were kept in what we call so uh, mini incubators. They had, obviously we couldn't see them. The only way we could observe and see how the embryos were doing is removing a dish, putting it under the microscope, 
and looking at how the embryos were doing. Um, so we were the embryos would would go through a lot of disturbances. Um, we would love to not disturb embryos, um, but we had to do it to check these embryos. Um, but time lapse has sort of revolutionised that that we can leave these embryos undisturbed for five or six days and watch them with a camera that's attached to a computer, and we can rewind, go forward, cross-sectional planes. It's absolutely incredible. So it's given us a lot of insight into what embryos, how embryos develop and what they do. But it's provided us with a lot of information for a lot of people who were unsure of what to do with it. Um, we, we couldn't see these things traditionally about, you know, 10 years ago. Um, so time lapse has definitely brought in a new sort of layer to, to, to science and, and, and the world of embryology. Yeah, I certainly as a clinician who's not an embryologist but maybe a wannabe an embryologist, um, <laughs> I love spending time in the lab and, and watching the embryos uh, in time-lapse because, yeah, it, it's just fascinating to see a, an egg and a, a sperm come together and then create this ball of cells that just do very interesting things and, and you know, sometimes you see an embryo and you just think, oh, wow, that is the most stunning-looking thing. And, yep. uh, and then a week later you'll see another one that looks amazing. And then sometimes you see ones that don't look amazing at all. No. Yeah. No. So um, I think it was, was it the Swedes that came up with the time-lapse or the, I think it's the Scandinavians, Yes. Um, or at least the embryoscope, which is a time of uh, a type of time lapse machine. Yeah, uh, there was there was I think before the embryoscope, I think it was the company was I found called Primovision. Mm. Um, they were the first ones in '97, but I think it became commercially available in 2009 um, by Vitrolife with the embryoscope. So, um, and the embry yeah the embryoscope, and they've obviously developed they've gotten better with their time lapse machines, but they're they're absolutely incredible. It's the things that we can see and and not the one thing that I think is is I think of benefit to patients is not disturbing these embryos. They're, they're, they're microscopic cells that if you, you know, just a small change in temperature or pH can be so detrimental to them. And so if we're keeping them happy for five or six days without really disturbing them, then we're giving them the best chance to thrive in, 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 in an environment that is best for them. So I think that's how time lapses, you know, changed and revolutionized, I think, embryology now. Um, and I think we're seeing more pregnancies. We're seeing better embryo development. We're seeing and patients get to their baby faster. And I think that's how, and in short, that's what we're trying to do with, with IVF and embryology. Can you explain to our listeners the difference between IVF and ICSI? So say I give you a batch of eggs and sometimes we do this. Uh, we say we're going to do half of half of these we're going to inseminate with IVF and the other insemination process will be ICSI. Can you explain mm. to our listeners the difference between those two when it comes to handling the eggs and the sperm? Mm -hmm. Good question. Um, so in general, I think the umbrella term is IVF. It's it's called in vitro fertilization. So, but what how we inseminate, how we put sperm and eggs together, is usually dependent on on the sperm. So, if the the, the semen analysis comes back for, for, for so patients come through for their first cycle, um, you know they've had unexplained infertility for a year, um, and the guy has the the male partner has has a good sample. So the sperm and the way we base on how we inseminate eggs is based on the sperm. Um, if they're swimming really well, so their motility, and they have a really good concentration, so how many of them there are, we would usually go and, and inseminate these eggs with IVF. Um, and what that involves is we take a sample of, so the eggs sort of are cultured in a, in a small dish. 
um, the eggs are sitting in in fluid that mimics the the fluid in the in the female reproductive tract, um, and then we just take a small portion of the sample that's been processed. So we process the semen when it comes to the lab. We clean it up. We get rid of any of the seminal plasma, um, and then we take a small portion from that sample and add the sperm to the eggs. And what the sperm are actually doing is they're swimming. We leave them overnight and the sperm swim to the eggs and make their way to the egg in the hope that they fertilize. So that's IVF. With ICSI, it's a little bit more invasive. It requires a little bit more manipulation. So like I said um, earlier, ICSI is intracytoplasmic sperm injection. So for patients who have a very, very low count or who don't have sperm that are swimming well, um, this is when we can sort of, and this is the exciting, This I, I love ICSI. I think it's <laughs> it's really, really cool. It's my favourite part. <laughs> so you like doing ICSI? Um, I love doing ICSI. And I think this is where us embryologists can really, and I think, you know, based on the experience on the scientists, you can really create beautiful embryos. This is where we come in and, and it becomes really scientific and nerdy. Um, uh, so, yeah, like I said, um, if they don't have a, a good motility or their the concentration is really, really low, um, this is when we do ICSI. Because if you think about it, if the sperm aren't swimming well, they can't get to the egg. If you think about natural conception, you need to have really good motility and a really good concentration because a lot of the sperm, by the time they make it all the way up the fallopian tube to the egg, a lot of them are either sort of die, run out of energy, or they get taken up by the female reproductive tract. So if you're already starting off with a really poor sample and these sperm aren't doing really well, they're never going to make it to this egg. So we want to ensure that the sperm are making it to the egg. Can I interrupt? Morphology. So the way that the sperm looks. So what if a guy's got a really low, uh, I saw a guy yesterday actually, and the only abnormality Mm. on his semen analysis was very poor morphology. Yes. What are the benefits of, of, uh, are there benefits in doing ICSI for that? I think so. I definitely think so. So for and and this is when I was going to add for some people they they have really good concentration, a really good motility, but they still get poor fertilization and poor development. And this is where morphology comes in. And we'll do ICSI for these patients where they've had poor development or they have um, a, a higher number of sperm who are abnormal. I mean, generally speaking, the majority of if you look at the male population in general, the majority of the sperm is abnormal. There's only I think a small portion, you know, that is normal looking um so for the way we assess sperm and we with the advantage of ICSI is we can choose good quality sperm um and what do i mean by good quality sperm i think you know people are like well how can you tell what's a good sperm from a bad sperm um normal sperm it's got like a smooth oval shaped head so we choose the better looking sperm and this is based on the world health organization's criteria for for morphology um and in cases where they have really poor morphology. The scientists were trained to look to find and identify sperm with better morphology or good morphology. Um, so we'll take normal-looking sperm and inject them into each mature egg, and that's where ICSI plays comes in and plays a role for these patients. And often so beautifully done when I walk into the labs and you guys are sitting there, you know, seated and you're manipulating these really fine instruments and you're also pleased with yourselves. I kind of understand why you would be. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's, it's, it's amazing. I think, you know, where the, the ICSI microscope, I feel like is an extension of our bodies. So there's a little bit of, you know, it's not a complete robot. It's sort of, you know, we're, it's an extension of our bodies, of our arms, and we use these little needles to sort of hold the egg in place and then find a nice-looking sperm and, and inject it into each egg. But there's definitely a satisfaction because I think when you think of science in general or even research, 
you know, research fails all the time. You're trying to find something new and exciting to help. And I think the the fun thing about ICSI and the rewarding thing about ICSI is I think for the majority of patients it works and you can see a good result. You can see fertilization the next morning. And I think to me as a scientist, that's where I find the satisfaction that I've been able to give these patients some hope and create embryos that they couldn't do in vivo. They couldn't do on their own. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the many benefits, I suppose, of reproductive medicine and what you do in the lab, Sarah, is that we're able to not only give people maybe a baby at the end of the day, but also explain to them in the process why they haven't been able to conceive naturally. Exactly. Um, And that goes back to my question. I wanted to ask you about egg quality. So Mm. I give you a batch of eggs and you're mm-hmm. going to go through and look at them. Can you tell this, our listeners what you're looking for and what a good quality egg um, it looks like compared to a poorer quality egg? Mm. I think with, with egg quality, it's really, really hard. I think the only way you'll know you have a good egg is if it gives you a baby in the end. And we'll never really, we'll never really know that unless we sort of put the embryo back and, and, and see what the end result is. But I think we have sort of little markers that, um, help us identify a good quality egg. When it comes to eggs, um, initially when they're first retrieved from the doctor and the fluid is handed to us, it's very difficult to tell whether the egg is mature um, or the quality of that egg because there's so many cells that surround the egg, and this is and the egg is termed at this stage the cumulus oocyte complex. So can, if you imagine the sun, you, you know, Tash doing an egg collection, you know, <laughs> when the scientist zooms in on the egg, mm. and you can tell when an, an egg. I mean, the majority of the time we're looking for maturity. And I think that's the key indicator that if you have a mature egg, it has the ability to fertilize, it has the ability to become an embryo later on. Um, So once we assess the eggs in the lab and we take them back, um, we're looking for what we call a small structure that sits on the outside of the egg, and that's termed a polar body. So if think of a sphere, like a ball, Mm -hmm. um, you know, when you, you know, the needle that you inflate a ball in. Mm -hmm. That when you're around, uh, there's like a small little structure that sits on the outside of the egg that's called a polar body. And that indicates a blob, isn't it? It looks like a blob. Correct. And it may look like a little blob, but it signifies so much for that egg. One, it signifies that the egg has gone through the correct development earlier on. So, you know, when eggs are dividing, this is going to get real nerdy. So I apologize if it's getting boring. Yeah, get all nerdy on us. That's all Um, good. So earlier on in the egg's development, the egg starts off and it has 46 chromosomes in there. Um, and once it develops and it becomes mature and it, it sort of extrudes or it removes half of those chromosomes so that it's it's got 23 on the inside. It's it's a It becomes on the inside a haploid cell. You don't want it deployed because if there's 46 on the inside and a sperm comes in and it brings in another 23, you're going to get an abnormal embryo, which is 69. So numbers play a big role in this case. And so that polar body indicates that the egg's gone through the correct development process and it's ready to receive a sperm. So that polar body indicates maturation. And, you know, doctors will throw this word, scientists will throw this word, oh, if the eggs are mature, we want mature eggs. Are the eggs mature, maturity, polar body? And for a lot of patients, they're like, aren't eggs all the same? Aren't they all the same? I'm, they're, they're the same size, right? And I think a lot of patients get caught up in size because during their stimulation period, they're like, oh, my follicle was this big. But once the eggs come out, they're all around the same size, which is about 50 to 80 microns, which is less than a tenth of a millimetre, half of a tenth of a millimetre. Um, but 
going back to egg quality, sorry, I get sidetracked. Mm, that's good. You come back to it. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, egg quality. So the main thing that we're looking for eggs is the polar body. But sometimes eggs, um, there are sort of structures on the inside of the egg that we believe it hasn't, you know, there's been a lot of research and a lot of literature. Um, you know, if an egg is mature, we'll always inseminate it. We'll never remove it. You know, for some patients, it's their only egg. Um, so there's a lot of organelles that play a role in the quality of the egg. Sometimes there are things called SERs. Have you heard of that term, Tash? Yes, yeah, smooth endoplasmic reticulum. Correct. So a lot of a lot of research and literature has shown it actually detrimental to to the developing embryo, and it's you know it, it may impact embryo development or even fertilization. Um, but for a lot of our patients. You know, when we're looking at the egg at the initial stage, if it's their only egg or their only few eggs, we'll always inseminate those eggs. We don't know how they're going to go, um, but the main thing that we're looking at is maturity. And then, you know, you put them in this uh, incubator, you grow them out and you watch them divide and do their thing in the time lapse if you're lucky, if your lab's lucky enough to have time lapse. Yes. Um, and then obviously uh, on the day of the embryo transfer, which usually is day five uh, in my experience anyway, um, I always ask the scientists, so what's embryo quality look like? And obviously every lab has a certain way of grading their embryos. Some labs mm. agree with each other, others don't. Others have a different grading system. Mm. Um, can you tell us about embryo grading and why is it that sub that labs differ in how they, they grade embryos? So, I mean, but this goes back to our initial question about quality. And for us as scientists, we're only making a static assessment. We look at the egg. It's got a polar body. It's got a cytoplasm. It's mature. We look at an embryo on day five. It's got trophectoderm. It's got an inner cell mass. I mean, quality is very hard to sort of measure. Um, there's, I don't think anyone can really measure that as of yet. But what we look for, so different labs did, use different grading systems. It's all based on the Gardner grading system. So majority of labs agree. I think everyone knows, majority of scientists and embryologists, this is an expanded, this is a blastocyst, this is an expanded blastocyst, this is a hatching or a fully hatched blast. Um, they all agree that the, um, you know, the embryo at what stage it is, but they use a different numbering system or a grading system. Everyone has their own sort of modified version of it. So some labs, for example, will call a, a you know, a day five good quality blast, a B11 or a 111 or a 1AA. So I think for an embryologist, we sort of know the different sort of uh, numbers or the grading systems that they use, but it's all essentially based off the Gardner grading system. And that's what majority of labs, um, back when it was first introduced, I think in the 1990s, I think it became sort of everyone would use that, but a, sort of a modified version of it. Does that answer your question in terms of different labs using different grading systems? Yes, and uh, tell us about Gardner. I know a bit about him, but tell our audience about Gardner. So David Gardner, is he's a Melbourne-based researcher. Um, so he has done a lot of work on the early developing embryo, the role of amino acids um, and, and embryo culture conditions and optimal culture conditions for embryos to grow in. So he's played a huge role. And a part of his research earlier on, I can't remember who the guy he um, collaborated with, but they came up with a grading system for embryos. So 
Day zero, you have an egg. Day one, it's a fertilized egg. Day three, they're cells. And I think everyone agrees up in up until then. And then it's day five when the embryo becomes a blastocyst or it's, it's a sphere-like structure. It's when the sort of the grading systems start to sort of change and different labs have different grading systems. Um, so that's where Gardner comes in. He's the one who established that, that grading system. And another cool thing you do in the lab is you biopsy embryos and you do things with the cells that you take. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah. So on we majority of labs do embryo biopsy on day five or day six. So it's on day five. And the reason, you know, some labs can do, do day three biopsy, but I think that's been a, a very old technique. It's become more advanced now and, and research has shown it's, it's better to take cells from a day five embryo um, because the day three embryo is still sort of working out which cells become what and you might accidentally take an excluded cell or, or something like that. Um, but day five embryo biopsy is taking a small – okay, I'm going to explain – I'm trying to help our listeners visualize what an no, embryo is. You're a day doing five a very em- good job. <laughs> so a day five embryo, like I said, is a sphere-like structure. You have can imagine a quilt, right? This is how I try to imagine the trophectoderm or the outer ball of the cells. Um, the outer cell line is known as a trophectoderm. That's what goes on to form the future placenta and sort of other outer um, embryonic tissue. And there's a ball or a cluster of cells on the inside of the embryo that's known as the inner cell mass. And that's what will give rise to the future fetus. So what we're taking on day five is some of the cells from the trophectoderm or the placental cells. Um, so embryos are, have, you know, are stem cells. If we take away some of those cells, that embryo is fine. You're not, you know, some patients would ask, if you take away some of those cells, will my baby be okay? Like, is it going to be missing a limb or a leg? And it's a legitimate question. Um, But we take some of those cells and we send them off for testing. And what the testing does is just telling us about the chromosomal health of that embryo. Um, Their 46 chromosome, does it have any missing embryos, any duplications, any triplications? So embryo biopsy is a very sort of intricate and delicate process. The scientist does it all under microscope. And we're just safely taking away about five to eight of those cells to run the testing process to check up on the chromosomal health of that embryo. And, of course, it's also um, genes that you're looking at as well potentially, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. For some patients, they want to look at um, genetic disorders. So this is where it's called PGD, um, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. Um, You know, for some of our patients and, and for some patients who come through, they can conceive, but they they just they can't they they're trying to sort of remove abnormal embryos or embryos that have been affected by a genetic disorder such as muscular dystrophy um Huntington's disease um yeah those those sort of genetic disorders that they want to create a healthy embryo and eventually a healthy baby earlier before i um called you I was I was baking a couple of cakes and one of the cakes I was baking was a, a burnt basque cheesecake <laughs> and, and the reason why I bring this up is because I was thinking about cheesecakes and how much I love them and I, I love in particular the New York uh, cheesecake and you know how you brought up your analogy about the embryologist in regards to and the the um the uh, embryo in regards to a quilt I was thinking yeah. With the trophectoderms, it's funny how you mentioned that. I was thinking, you know, when you have a tin, a cake tin, and you're making New York cheesecake and you have to get the crumble and you have to kind of line the whole cake tin with the crumble. And yes. then you add a bit of 
um, the cheesecake dough or mixture, but in only in a little corner. So I was thinking that little corner is the the inner cell mass, which is going to become the baby, and then the whole you know, crusty cheese stuff, so the uh, crumble stuff that you've put all around the sides and the edges is the trifectoderm. Is that a bit, yep. is it a bit, is that a bit out there, Sarah? <laughs> no. I mean, I don't think so. I mean, you know, I, I, for me, and, and this is why I like to say, you know, we're trying to demystify the science or trying to get, you know, our patients to understand what we're seeing and what we're visualising because a lot of what happens in the lab no one really discusses. It's like, okay, you've got my eggs and sperm, you go and do with them. But it's, I think, a nice way to help patients and people understand, you know, what a what a day five embryo looks like. You know, sometimes I'll be talking to my husband or a friend and I'm like, oh, hang on, Let, how can I put this in a way that they can sort of visualise and understand in their head? So I think that's a perfect analogy. Mm. I think it's great. But I think pictures do you know, say a lot more and it is nice when yes. scientists and I know you you guys do share pictures of embryos with not just the doctors but, of course, the patients and they're, you know, treasured forever and patients can take photos of their embryos. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I love it when pretty beautiful. I stand there and I discuss the embryo, embryo trans and I'm like, do you want a photo? And they're mm. like, really? Can I take one? I'm like, of course, it's your embryo. Mm. You can, you know, now given COVID and the whole situation, your partners aren't really allowed in so they're not – they're not really able to be a part of that process. So if we can help them take a photo or take a video, at least they can go back, show their partner, look at the look at the embryo, look how it was developing. This is what it is. And I think, you know, with with you know microscopes and being able to visualize these embryos, a lot, you know, we couldn't see these embryos or what they look like when they were in our own uterus. So we're looking at this embryo so earlier on. And, you know, you can take these photos and these pictures and show it to your potential baby later on mm. and be like, look. You know, this is how small you were and this is how earlier on we could see you. Yeah. So, well, yeah, the fact that some embryos ain't so pretty when they go in but they come out as beautiful babies, you know. Oh, uh, I, I think that's been of real interest to me. You know, there's there's a whole grading system and, you know, we grade embryos based on the quality. You know, we, we grade the trifectoderm, you know, the placental cells, we grade the fetal cells. But you'd be surprised, you know, there are some poorer quality embryos and you think, oh, I mean, we know that. A day five embryo is what gives you the best chance for pregnancy. Um, and then the better quality embryos have a higher chance of pregnancy. And then you see that that drop down and, and it happens along the course of, you know, the, the developing embryo in the lab and so forth. But we've seen embryos that are sort of, you know, behind by a day or so. And you, go, you come back 10 days later and you're thinking, oh, I think it might be a negative pregnancy test. You're like, hang on, mm. that's a positive. <laughs> and it's amazing. I think, you know, once those embryos go back into their into the, into the their natural environment or where they should be, there's, there's things that I think that we can – there's only so much we can supplement embryo culture media and how these embryos grow in the lab. There are things that we'll never be able to, to exactly replicate in the lab. It, the uterus and the female reproductive system is absolutely incredible. Um, and you put them back in there and they have the nourishment, they have the things that we probably couldn't provide and they go on and they flourish. And I think mm. you've got to give it hope, you've got to give them hope. If there's the smallest chance of hope, then I think do it, put it back, freeze it, give it a chance. Yeah, and, and the, the warmth and the energy from the mother, you know, how do we know that all that other stuff doesn't come into play and I'm sure it does at some level. Yeah. Which then takes me to this big question for you, Sarah. Oh, <laughs> When does life begin? Oh, that's a really tricky question, Tash. <laughs> um, I think for a lot of people, 
I think it depends on their religious beliefs or what they do or don't believe in. For some people, it's when the sperm and the egg fuse together. But for me personally, I think not every embryo is going to become a baby. So does that mean it's life? Is is that is that the definition of life? I think people don't even agree. Can't even agree what the true definition of life is. But um, I don't know. That's a tricky one, Tash. I don't know if I can answer that. Mm. You know, I, I I feel pretty strongly about when life begins. For me, it's when the heart starts beating and blood starts to flow. Yeah, I, I, uh, I think for me, that when I you see that little are. baby and it, the heart yep. beating, and you know that when that heart beats, there's blood flowing around the body, and with with blood flow, you get hormones taken to the right place, you get neurotransmitters. That's when things start to flourish, and yes. and that for me has always been. When people ask me, when do you think life starts? I'm like, when when there's a heartbeat, you know. Yeah. Uh, when there's Isn't no heartbeat, what, there's no life. Days after. When yeah, you, when you die, your heart stops, right? That's right. Your brain doesn't get fed any blood anymore, nor does any other organ in your body. But, hey, we could um, have a whole other discussion about that one. <laughs> but I, I think I agree with you. I think it's, for me, I think it's when the blood starts beating and there's, 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 that's, that's life. Something is, is going on. And I think that's, for me, I think that's when life starts as well. But, like you said, it's up to everyone's interpretation. Mm. So in the future, I mean, actually, let's not talk about the future. Let's talk about now. Um, in your day-to-day work as a, an embryologist in um, some high-tech labs that you've worked at and, you know, have worked in, um, mm. where do you see robots and artificial intelligence in your day? You mentioned mm. earlier that the instruments that you use to help you perform ICSI are not really robots. They're just kind of like extensions of your hand. Mm. Um, but can you answer that? I think artificial intelligence has been is is an is an up and coming big thing in in, in embryology. Um, I think robotics still have a long way to go. I think robots have to be able to think and do things on 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 their own. I think with embryology, a lot of the things that we do, the scientists still control what happens, how it's moved about. And I think for robotics, I think the robot needs to be able to do things on its own. Um, but artificial intelligence is, is I think, the next big thing in embryology. It's, it's definitely up and coming. Um, what it is is so the introduction when time lapse came about, all of these, all of this information became readily available to the to, to scientists, and we weren't quite sure of what to make of it. But um, over the past, I think, ten years, there's been some incredible work and a lot of research going on. How can we take all of these images and all of these sort of um, what we call morphokinetics, all these little little changes that happen in the embryo, and how can we sort of choose the best quality embryo? And I think. IVF has always been how can we, especially I think the last 10 years, how can we achieve a pregnancy or a live birth the fastest way possible or the shortest way possible? Um, and I think this is where artificial intelligence is coming in. Um, so, I, I mean, so AI, it's it's been I, – I don't think there's anything now – there are a couple of people that a couple of sort of um, companies that have developed um, – artificial intelligence like programs to help you choose the best embryo so essentially what it is it's telling a program based on feeding it loads of images um, and telling it these are the markers say for example you know fertilization development from the two to the three cell stage becoming a morula becoming a blastocyst so it's ai coupled with deep learning so we're giving these machines 
and feeding them and teaching them and allowing them to choose the best embryo that will give you a pregnancy or a fetal heart. So I think it's going to, I think we're just on the cusp of something amazing right now. So I think it's definitely something to look out for in the future. And there's, I think there's a few companies, like I said, that have introduced themselves um, as looking at which embryo will give you a pregnancy and a baby. It's more based on fetal hearts and like what's going to give you a fetal heart. But I think it's definitely something to look out for now. Yeah, because I could imagine in your day you're often together with other scientists and you're often looking together and looking at to, to see which embryo is nice to put back. Uh, does that mm. happen quite a lot? Yeah, we're always, we're always, can I get a second opinion? What do you think of this embryo? And there's, like I said, there's so many things that we can't sort of, we can't just as an embryologist by looking at an embryo, even with the time lapse, we're sort of, you know, scrolling, forwarding and rewinding through these images. There are a lot of things that are happening in the background that are not, we don't sort of take into consideration or are not of meaning to us yet because we don't know how. Um, But, you know, with these machines and being able to, assess the how many hours or how many minutes or how many cells are formed um that's where AI comes in but for us as scientists you know I'm always I grab my colleague and like what do you think of this embryo can we freeze it we're always you know a a second set of eyes is always helpful because they may bring something in that you haven't necessarily picked up on and you know these recordings and these images there's so much to take in it looks like just a ball of cells but it's so much more there's so much more to it than just being a ball of cells um, so we're always collaborating and, and you know, um, uh, chatting to one another and what do you think? Should we do this? Can we do, can we biopsy? Can we freeze? Do you think this embryo is better than this embryo? So as scientists, obviously, we wish, and I think this is where AI will come in and help us um, to, to choose those better quality embryos. And I think, you know, for a lab that only has one scientist, if you can have that artificial intelligence alongside the embryologist, I think it will help you make better decisions and, and, and give those patients what they're after. That is so true. Two brains and four eyes better than one brain, two eyes. But AI yeah. added to all of that will just make it oh, the best possible. Deep learning and algorithms and morphokinetics. <laughs> yeah. No, we always have exciting. to keep on top of it, yeah. What I've missed with COVID is that um, I've missed going to scientific conferences and uh, I always love going to those big, you know, um, demos that, 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 you know, those booths that they have at the conferences where people have their latest products and, and they're, they're showing you what they're doing with their equipment. And I, I definitely miss that. Uh, yeah. So looking forward to all of that coming back again one day. Mm, um, one day. What is the most exciting part of your job? So earlier you talked about ICSI and you fired up with excitement when you mentioned ICSI, but what is, if you had one thing about your job that you find the most exciting, what is it? Mm. Oh, I think, yeah, like I said to you, I think ICSI is very, very exciting for me. But I think the, I think if you were to ask any scientist, no matter, or embryologist, no matter how long they've been in the field, I think getting that positive pregnancy when you know that you've done everything you can in the lab, especially for patients who've had either recurrent miscarriages or they've been trying for so long or they've had, you know, some medical condition that's prevented them from trying to conceive, and you're finally able to get that positive pregnancy test. I think that that is the ultimate sort of. It's it's. I don't think there's anything that could make me happier as an embryologist, yeah. knowing that you've done everything you can to get them that positive pregnancy. 
Yeah, and then when you get the email with a little picture attached of a baby and you're like, yeah, that's a good outcome. Yeah. Yeah. Or they come and they visit you. I think yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> yeah, or they send you pictures like the old school yeah. way. <laughs> and I think, you know, I mean, probably you're probably the same. You think this ball of cells that we've been growing and looking for, you know, we froze it, we thaw it, we put it back. For that to become a life, a living being, and I think that that is amazing. I don't think that will ever, that, that fascination and that excitement will never wear off. No, no way. So what's the most tedious part of your job though? Uh, the most tedious part of my job. I mean, I if, think- if you go into embryology and you're, you don't already have obsessive compulsive disorder <laughs> because you have to check things all the time and oh. cross-check, um, you know, oh, would you OCD come out of training with OCD? <laughs> I, I think it, I think it, an embryo, I think a real, a true embryologist will always have OCD, but they won't show it. Um, but you do eventually end up with, I think, more OCD. I think I'm, I've become more OCD than I ever was. Um, but I think the most tedious part would be, um, I think the pressure. The, you know, it's we're always we put so much pressure on ourselves as embryologists because we want everything to be the best. We want the best culture conditions, the best eggs and sperm, the best, you know, we want to make sure that this is put forward, this is frozen correctly. I've done the best transfer. So for me, I think I put a lot of pressure on myself. Um, it's probably a good thing, but a bad thing in a way. Um, so I think that's definitely tedious and that definitely wears me down. Um, but yeah. And probably when, when things don't work out, I think that's for me when that becomes tedious for me. But, yeah, I don't know. I think that's it. How about neck pain? You know, I always see you guys kind of bent down, you know, your neck's always in a certain position. Do you what, – what physical challenges do you face as embryologists? Oh, we're, we're always in weird and awkward positions. I think, um, you know, back in the day when embryology first came about, scientists used to mouth pipette. And, um, but now we all do all the manipulations with micro pipetting. So you definitely, you know, scientists now, there's a lot of RSI. There's a repetitive strain on the thumb and the hand, um, the awkward positions that we go in to move the embryos. Or, you know, sometimes we're sitting for a long ICSI. The other week, I was looking for sperm for about, I'd say almost three and a half hours, Whoa. just looking for sperm. Did you and, find and any in the is, end? I did. I ended up, the patient had over 20 eggs. Um, so I had to look for 20, over 20 sperm. Oh, it's like truffle hunting, huh? You, it you is. We actually, it's, it's a hunt. It's a sperm search. We call it a sperm search. And, um, but it's, it's amazing because the Come up for air, Delighty. Come up for air. <laughs> yeah. So, um, we do, we do sit in, in positions for quite a long time. So you definitely sometimes get a sore neck, but, um, we always try, you know, when you work as, as a part of a great team, you've always got scientists who'll jump in, move in and be like, okay, let me take over. You go have a break. But there are some physical, physical change, um, challenges that we, we face. Um, yeah. So, um, how, how long do you have to, to be able to look for sperm? So if you, if you went, what's the maximum time you give it? You know, it's like when we do CPR, we have a certain amount of time we give yeah. to declare someone dead. Yeah. Um, when you're doing sperm search, how long do you look for it until you say really there's nothing here? Until, until you don't really find anything. Mm. I mean, look, there are samples that you start off with and, and you kind of, you know that there's nothing there, but we will search between, you know, there are days where we've had four scientists searching through a sample and each scientist has sat for an hour and a half. That's wow. a combined effort of about six hours. Um, but 
if you find sperm and you and you can find sperm, I I will always continue to look for sperm to inject as many eggs as I can. Um, and once I've gone through the entire sample and I can't find any more, then and that's when I'll call it. So if I if I can inject some of these eggs, I will try my best to always look for as many sperm as I can. Um, but if I can't, then we have to call it and then freeze those eggs and and then see how we go the following time. So with this case that you had last week, uh, was mm. it a, a case of a fresh ejaculate but very low sperm count or was it a testicular sperm retrieval? What? Why such a low sperm? Um, it was actually a cancer patient. So, oh, right. yeah, had sperm frozen um, prior to treatment and um, unfortunately, you know, with sperm freezing and thawing, um, sperm – uh, you know they're strong, but they're not that strong. A lot of them do, unfortunately, not make it through the through the freezing and thawing process. Um, but for him, he had already started off with a compromised sample. So, and the the reason, I mean, we could, there's there's sperm there. It's just a matter of you want to inseminate sperm that are moving. You don't want dead sperm. So it's looking for the tiniest movement. Sometimes, you know, when you think of sperm, you know, majority of the time sperm is swimming. Um, but for these patients with a compromised compromised motility um these sperm are barely twitching so it's like a muscle twitch and we'll sometimes look at a sperm you're like come on move 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 and you'll see the smallest twitch you're like it's alive pick it up <laughs> frankenstein it's alive <laughs> one common question i always get is how long can you freeze sperm for Zalati, over to you um you can speak freeze leave as in leave them frozen yeah, like free sperm, like, you know, for, like egg, a sperm donor decides he wants to donate his sperm, how long can yeah. his, you know, sperm be frozen for? Indefinitely. As long as I as mean, long as long someone's paying some storage fee? Yeah. I mean, look, yeah. with New South Wales, the laws are, obviously there's there's laws that govern every state, um, but I think in New South Wales it's 15 years you can freeze your gametes for. Um, that's a contract you hold between you and the IVF company. Um but really, if you want to come down to the science and the biology of it, if you've got the em- eggs or embryos or sperm in liquid nitrogen, so they're frozen, on, it's about minus 190 degrees Celsius, they can remain frozen for a ver- for, for indefinitely. Oh, I always think of Michael Jackson for some reason when people <laughs> ask me about freezing. I always think of that time, it was, I think it was in the 80s or the 90s when he was talking about freezing his body. Do you remember that? Or maybe you're just too young. I was. I, I don't think I was bo- early eighties. I wasn't born. Nineties. <laughs> I remember Michael Jackson, but but it, but the people have have wanted to. You know, I don't know what's the word called where they they, they go in and cryo- they freeze pre- themselves. Cryo, yeah, cryo preservation. Yeah, that's what we do. Yeah. A lot. Of, I think. Mm. Uh, I think I'd be a bit worried about freezing an entire human body. Uh, you know, if you think about an embryo or a sperm, we can. Uh, you know, ninety eight percent of the time they survive, and this is a single cell. Can you imagine a whole human body that's so complex um, with its entire nervous systems and you know? <laughs> I'm sure <laughs> somewhere in the go. world, somewhere in the world, they they've tried it on people, but we don't. I think know they yet. have. Mm. I think they have. Mm. I think they have. Don't know the outcomes yet. Mm. <laughs> so, is there anything else you wanted to tell our listeners about in regards to embryology before I ask you some more Sarah Delati questions? Uh, um. Oh, I, oh, I don't know. How I think, long does it take look, to become an embryologist? Oh, good question. There, um, it, for for me, my majority of so, you, you start off as a trainee scientist or a trainee embryologist, 
Um, it takes up to a year and a half or two years. It's a very meticulous embryology is very yeah meticulous and intricate and it's fine manipulation and micro manipulation. So I think to become an embryologist and you haven't seen it all by the end of two years. Mm. Um, so I think a solid a year and a half or two years is makes you a, a qualified embryologist. Okay. Yeah. So Sarah, mm. which people have been your biggest inspirations until now? Um, I think, you can talk about your screaming kids in the background, but maybe you've got oh, other I'm people sorry. in mind. <laughs> That's fine. Not a problem at all. That's fine. Not at all. Um, I think, you know, I, you know I've, I think I've definitely got inspirations from a personal and a professional point of view. I think um, my parents, you know, my dad, my mum and dad came here, you know, migrants in the, in the 1980s from a war-torn country. And, you know, dad came here, set up his life. He had no one, had nothing. And he pushed for us to have an education and, you know, um, so he's probably the biggest inspiration. Both my mum and my dad, they came here, didn't know the language, didn't know much about this country, thrown into a, a world um, and here we are, you know, I was, you know, born and raised here and, and we still, you know, we still struggle. So I can't imagine how much they went through. So for, for me, he's, he's my biggest inspiration um, on a personal level. And how about a professional level? Oh, there's lots of people. I don't know. I find I find people in general inspiring. I'm that type of person who's mm. inspired by anyone and everyone. Um, you know, there's so many amazing scientists and embryologists that I've worked with, you know, in, in my years and um, my old manager, um, she's definitely an inspiration. I think the things that I learned from her, um, you know, my embryology skills and the, the embryologist that I am now, um, she's definitely shaped me a lot and, and taught me so much over the years. I'm still in contact with her. And I, her name? I really, her name is Diana, Diana Bowie. Oh, I love Diana. Yeah. Oh, probably, yeah. Probably her and, and Jen, I think they're the two, I think for me and my embryology and my professional experience, they've become yeah. really inspiring. Jen, you're keto, you know, buddy. You're doing keto. You went. You guys. You you guys. You you guys had your own little keto cooking business, didn't you? What's happening there? Oh, we had a little business that we thought we'd try. It was really successful. We loved it, and um, yeah. So they're they're definitely inspirational. Those those guys, and there's a lot of people that I've come across the years. A lot of doctors, um, you know, that have inspired me. Um, yeah. And how about favorite books? Do you have any? Oh, I, I, I haven't done much reading lately, but I think one of my favourite books that I read um, was My Sister's Keeper by mm. Jodie Picoult, if that's how you say her name. Okay. That book and Memoirs of a Geisha, I read that when yeah. I was quite young. <laughs> me too. I remember it made such an impression on me. I've only read it once. But yeah. I, yeah, I loved that book. But then I'm into my fiction, like, you know, Harry Potter. I love a bit of Harry Potter and, yeah. How old Ooh. is your eldest son? My eldest is seven and a half. Oh, okay, so have you read her Harry Potter with him? I am. We're actually reading it together. Oh, that's so. Okay. We're on book number one, and every night he's like, "So, are we reading? Come on, are we reading?" I'm like, "Okay." <laughs> Very cute. And how about yeah. songs that make you happy, Sarah? Oh, <laughs> hey, you haven't walked into the lab with us singing and belting out. <laughs> I don't know your favorite song. No, I don't know. Oh, I love, I love a bit of R and B. Lately, I love Ariana Grande. Jen, Jen knows that. Um, yeah, we're, we're obsessed with her. We love, you know, hitting those high notes. Not that we're good singers or anything, but yeah, a little bit of R and B. Anything that kind of makes me happy, makes me want to dance. 
um, sometimes we sing to the embryos. I'm like, go on, you good thing. <laughs> That's so good. That's so cool. Yeah, I was um, during the week. I was having a chat with some researchers in Spain, actually, who um, play uh, music for the embryos in the incubators because they found that uh, it increases fertilization rates and blastocyst rates but no significant increase in uh, pregnancy rates, but obviously no negative effects. So all of their embryos get played music. Isn't that amazing? Wow. And any type That's of amazing. music, doesn't matter what music, it's just kind of like a random playlist apparently, whatever the scientist feels like. Oh, um, there you go. So I think you should, I think well, you should definitely t- sing to those embryos, Sarah. We always pump a bit of music. So. <laughs> yeah, hopefully you can get through those incubators, you know. Hopefully they're not oh, too kind of foolproof. <laughs> How about your dream collaboration? Dream collaboration. Um, I'd say Marcus, I don't know how to pronounce his surname, Marcus Nazuga. So he works in an IVF clinic. He works for Evie. Um, I've just been mesmerized by his research, the things that he's been doing. Um, So he works in Europe, in Spain, in one of the IVF clinics there. Those Spaniards, they come up with some amazing stuff. They're they're real leaders in the world, aren't they? They really are. They are. Well, they're not really small, but that country is just amazing when it comes to IVF. I'm pretty sure he's either Spanish or Italian, one Mm. of them. His name is Marcus Mazuga. Mazuga. I'm not too sure how to pronounce his surname, Mm. but his research has been amazing. The the work and and the stuff that they're doing with with embryo development, embryo culture and time-lapse systems and just the insight. Um, So he's someone I would love to collaborate with and learn from. Um, Yeah, he's definitely up there for me. Go, Marcus. I hope you're listening to this. Maybe we should you know, hashtag him into it if he's on Instagram or anything. Oh, yeah. It's a good idea. <laughs> now, my last question to you. Top tips yeah. for being a kick-ass embryologist, as I know you are, and that's why I'm chatting to you today, but can you oh. give advice to future up-and-coming embryologists, Sarah? Five top tips. Um, I think you've got to be passionate. I think if you're not passionate about what you do, um, then, you know, I think for an embryologist, you need to be really passionate, um, knowledgeable. I think we end up being experts in our field and we're, we're super nerdy. Like we, we get so nerdy sometimes chatting to one another. I think you really need to know your stuff. And I think there's nothing more helpful when, when an embryologist knows the science, knows as much as they can about the background because I think allows the doctors to to learn from them, and but also helps the patients. And I think patients truly appreciate when you try and explain to them what's going on and, and how you can help them. So knowledgeable. Um, we we said it earlier. You need to be OCD. Attention to detail <laughs> is one of the key things that make an embry- that makes an embryologist special. I think. Um, the things that we do and, and the movements and the way we manipulate and move these embryos, if you don't have attention to detail, unfortunately, I don't, I don't think this is a job for you. Um, yeah. Uh, what's that? So passionate, knowledgeable, attention to detail. I think you really need to be a good problem solver or a troubleshooter. Um, sometimes it's not just this, it's, it's not about the science. It's about the equipment and the machines that we work with. If you don't, you know, sometimes you come into the lab and, machine stuck something's not working and I think you really need to step outside and be like okay how can I get this up and running to you know to help me get through my day so you need to be able to be problem solving and, and troubleshooting and thinking on the spot um how about a morning person do you have to be a morning person to be an embryologist I think you do don't you uh, probably uh, probably I mean I love getting up nice and early 
One, I beat the traffic. Two, I get, I, I'm always in a rush to see how I went the day before if I've done an exit. We're always sort of on edge. How did I go? How did I go? How did I go? So, um, yes. Yeah. How, how many is that? Is that four or five? I think that's plenty. Thank you yeah. <laughs> so much for your time. I really appreciate you talking to us. And, um, yeah, your your excitement for and love for what you do is so tangible. And oh, um, Thanks, Tash. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode with Sarah Delati, that it's opened you up to the world of embryology, science and IVF. Share this episode with someone if you think it will help them or inspire them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear, cool people I can interview, or books for us to read and share. Until next time, stay fanny-tabulous.